0: So we um, are heading into the next, the next um, in the series on on next session in the series on um, the authority of the Bible. So last 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 Tuesday evening, I introduced the subject, and we introduced the entire series, uh, we, we, and, and ultimately, as, as I said, I, I want us to examine uh, the case for the uh, historic, historic um, orthodox approach to the Bible as God's Word. Why do Christians believe the Bible is God's Word? And I to remember the series, um, this, this, forms, this this series, The Authority of the Bible, forms part of a wider series we've been looking at on Sunday's best, and asking ourselves rethinking uh, what some of the the common practices of the church and why we why we engage in them in the first place one of those practices of course is reading the Bible you go to churches and that's what you expect if you played a word association game and you said you know church or Christians then I'm sure the Bible will be right up there in in, in in the first few answers that you get and so um, what does happen though is Christians maybe can take for granted and there's a sense in which it's not always a bad thing but sometimes you can take for granted the um, the the reason for why we give so much um, honor so much time to the Bible now one reason of course is because of the experiential um, part of, uh, of, of that of reading and hearing the Bible all Christians are acquainted with the authority that the Bible just has over their lives as soon as they've been converted. We are all acquainted with that, with the richness of the experiences, with the illumination and the enlightenment we receive, with, with the, as I said, the authority, the, 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 the weight that the scriptures hold, a kind of absolute weight, on how we order our lives, what we're, we're, we're acquainted with standing on the promises of God and, and hoping in something that we've read in the scriptures. And, and we're, we're acquainted with the, the drastic ways in which sometimes we'll make decisions and change character and you know order our lives because of something in the Bible. And so for many of us, just that divine experience that we have when it comes to reading and meditating on the word is often sufficient for us to just believe that the Bible is God's word. And there's, uh, again, there's a lot to be said for that. It it points probably to the superior witness, uh, the superior conviction of God's word being uh, inspired and of the Bible being God's word, which is the Holy Spirit at work convincing us of the authority of God's testimony. But that being said, it also is important that we are acquainted with, um, as the Apostle Peter says, the the ability to, to, to give, Reason, answer for why we believe what we believe, um, and again, the Bible is what um, fashions this answer up for us. And so, essentially, throughout this series, what I, one of my concerns is to show us what the Bible says about itself. Uh, the, the Bible is God's word, and as an as in one sense, an ultimate authority, it can really have it can't really have a greater authority than itself. And so it's important for us to be acquainted with what the Bible says about itself. One reason for that one other reason for that, though, is very often assaults on this doctrine. And you remember last week I closed just by talking about I closed talking about um, um, what's at stake if we settle for a, a less than, I will say, biblical, but historical view. You might call it the evangelical view of biblical inspiration. What's at stake? What do we lose if we allow the Bible to be something less than fully inspired by God's Word, something less than perfect, uh, something less than perfectly authoritative? What's at stake? And I listed all these things. And the thing, one of the things is that there are people in the church, it's one thing for outsiders to claim the Bible is not God's word, but there are some within the church, and we're going to come across people who claim to be Christians, who are saying that Christians who are saying they believe the gospel, but they think it's okay to settle for a less than... Um, infallible view of the scriptures. And who would say that they can defend this from the Bible itself? So one of my main concerns, one of my concerns is to to show and to suggest that it's impossible, for example, to read um, the Bible without recognizing that its claim, the Bible's own claim to authority is one that is absolute. The The Bible's own testimony to its, the Bible's testimony to its own divinity uh, is one that declares it to be perfect in the, um, to in, in, the in, in, in all that it says, um, and so i 'm concerned for us to ask what does the Bible say about itself and to do so then um, t- tonight we 're looking at these these fundamental doctrines, these basic doctrines to how Christians have understood. Um, inspiration. I understood the Bible. Now, as far as this, this, the authority of the Bible, fundamental to what we think of the authority of the Bible, fundamental to the, the authority that the Bible has in our lives is this concept, or, or these concepts we'll look at, of inspiration and infa- infallibility. Two significant, easy to be, in one sense, easy to be understood, I would, I think, um, concepts, in one sense, anyhow. Uh, and they're fundamental to, 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 um, how you understand the authority of the Bible. So the extent to which you believe this and to which you understand this will be the extent to which you defend or uh, appreciate the authority of of the Bible. Now, um, let me show you a few statements. Um, Okay, that's not meant to be. What can you guys say on your screen? Um but yeah, a few a few statements, you guys you guys in this building just wait. I have no clue what's happening. Um Yeah, but a few I, I'm I'm going to you can't see anything at the moment, can you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to sort that out in a sec. Apologies. But few few statements. You, you guys at home can see this on your screen. Um, someone says the Bible is reliable. The Bible is reliable. Um, or the Bible is trustworthy. and Or the Bible is a guide for Christians. Or the Bible contains truth. Or even the Bible is the word of God. These are all statements that I think generally... All Christians would agree with. Um, all Christians will agree with, for example, the fact that the Bible is reliable, or if you say the Bible is trustworthy, or that the Bible is a guide for us, or that the Bible even contains truth. But in one sense, you don't get to the um, the heart of the the Bible's authority just by saying that. So you can can believe all those things and still not believe a biblical view of um, inspiration. You can believe the Bible is reliable, but reliable to what extent? You can believe the Bible is trustworthy, but how much of your trust does the Bible um, sort of deserve? A lot of that is dependent on what we think about how the Bible came to be. So when we say the Bible is the Word of God, for example, um, when we say the Bible is the Word of God, what does that actually mean? What, what do we mean by that? Do we mean that the Bible says some things that are to be believed or can be believed by the Christian? Or do we think that everything the Bible says, for example, is, is to be held as, as God's Word? A lot of that has to do with what we make of this doctrine of inspiration. Now, if, if you remember the quote that I read to you last week, you guys, sorry, you can't see the screen, but I promise is going to come. But the, 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 the statement we read last week, on biblical inerrancy from the, the Chicago Statement, says that Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. And the, the first few statements on the first few lines of this statement are uh, they, they get to the heart of what we mean by inspiration. So, first of all, that the Bible is God's word because although it was written by men, it was superintended by God's spirit, right? God's spirit controlled the whole process of giving us, giving us um, the Bible, and that because we receive the Bible through the superintendence of God's Holy Spirit. It is also infallible. It, is, it, it can't be wrong on anything it says. So two things, two things here. One, we receive the Bible um, through this process of the Holy Spirit giving it to us. Through this process referred to as um, inspiration. And because of that, everything the Bible says is true. So when you, get, when, you, when you think through the authority of the Bible, the kind of authority that the Bible has with Christians, again, you're thinking about what the Bible says of inspiration. So what do you think the Bible says about how it came to be? How do we get the Bible that we have in our hands? And that's what the doctrine of inspiration is about. So I'm going to read from uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. And this is essentially where we get the... Um, the word inspiration from. Right? This is why, this is where this, this doctrine of the Bible being inspired comes from. In 2 Timothy 3:16, you all know the verse quite well. Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, essentially. The the word there that's translated, um, breathed that, that that we that's that's translated breathed out. If you had a KJV, I think yeah, it's the um, the ESV I've just read before you says breathed out. But in the King James version, it says all Scripture is inspired by God, um, and that's where we get this idea of the doctrine of inspiration. Um, the the word in, in in the in your Greek Bible, 2 Timothy three sixteen, the word there says is God breathed doesn't actually say, doesn't really translate, it probably doesn't perfectly translate as inspired. Um, So according to Paul, what he says is, God breathed out the scriptures. Yes, God breathed out the scriptures. The reason why it's not the same thing as inspiration is that when Paul says God breathed out the scriptures, he's not saying that God simply inspired the biblical authors to write what they wrote, right? So he's not simply saying, God, God, like God, filled Paul with inspiration. Like Paul was really inspired, and then Paul started to write his own stuff. You, you, you can get that idea from the word inspiration. Um, neither is it simply when the Bible, when the Bible says, when when Paul says, um, the Bible is inspired. Neither is he saying that the Bible inspires us right? So the doctrine of inspiration is not saying that the Bible is an inspiring book. It is an inspiring book, but then so are many other books. So is Mandela's autobiography, right? The Long Walk to Freedom is an inspiring book. And Malcolm X's autobiography is an inspiring book. That's not what Paul means when he says the book, the Bible is God-breathed. So again, I, I, I think, I know the KJV translate that as inspiration. I don't know many other English versions that do. I don't, know if, I don't know which ones actually translate as inspiration. But Paul is not saying, right, he's not saying that God's Word is inspiring so that you read it, so that the point is when you read God's Word, you get something out of it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the book is, it comes from God's breath, right? God breathed it out. Now, when you read your scriptures, um, you know the kind of the, the ways in which god's breath is associated with his his power right so when the scriptures speak about god's breath they one of the things well two things come to mind two particular things come to mind anyone can tell me one of them when you, when, when the scriptures speak about god's breath so the the, the say for example the hebrew word ruach um, or the Greek, the Greek word pneumatos. What are those? What are those? What what what? Are, there's two major ideas that are associated with the breath of God. Yeah, given life is absolutely true. Something even greater than that. Adam receiving light is, life is part of what process? Creation. creation. So the Psalms speak about the cre- creation itself being the result of God's breath. So when the Bible says saying, when Paul says, God's words are the result of God's breath, he's saying God's word is every bit as divine as creation is. It's it's the work of God. The the origins are divine. The origins, so when Christians, when we talk about our Bibles, the origins are always to be uh, related to... to a divine work. It's divine. It's not merely human origins. What else? What else? And this is another significant thing in the doctrine of inspiration. What else is the breath of God? Do you know? So, so there's another, I uh, don't want to say concept, but truth in the Bible that the, the breath of God is strongly associated with. One of them is, is God's power and creation. So his power. Another one is in Christian imagery, the breath of God evokes or reminds us of Absolutely, the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is, is, is very often referred to in the imagery of the breath of God. And those two things are vital when you think of what's happening in the, Bibles, in the Bible before you. Paul is saying the Bible is of divine origin. And he's saying, he's probably, he's, he, he introduces us to the reality also that the Bible um, is the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at another passage shortly, 2 Peter, where the Apostle Peter makes it explicit, right? He makes it explicit that the Bible is the work of God's spirit. So that when, the, when we think of the word of God in our hands, we, we think, and, and, and I'm going to speak about another side to this in a moment, but we're thinking fundamentally about a work of divine origin. When I speak to someone and I say, I read the Bible, what I'm trying to say to them is, I read a work that God designed in a way that he's done no other. A work of pure divine origins, right? This is what we have to, this is what we believe. This is what the Bible is saying about itself. This is God's book. This is God's word. In a sense, and, and, and he breathed it out. It came, it came straight from God. In a unique way, it's come straight from God. It's not simply a matter of inspiring someone to write what's on their mind. And just before we, we leave this passage, this well-known passage, don't forget Paul says all of scripture not some of scripture so Paul believes all of scripture has divine origins and I'm going to say in a moment consequently has divine authority A next passage when we think of the doctrine of inspiration and what it is is 2nd Peter 1 and verse 21 and in 2nd Peter, Peter 1 and verse 21 the apostle Peter says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, in another passage where the apostle, in, a, where, where, where in the New Testament, where one of the apostles is speaking to us about the, um, the authority of the Bible, about, the nature, about what the Bible is like. So, if in the context of 2 Peter 1, Peter is telling, the, he's writing to, to these folks, um, he's he's recounting what happened at the Transfiguration when they heard the very voice of God from heaven. The disciples saw that they heard that. But he says, actually, there's even a more certain word, which is the Scriptures. The Scriptures are even more certain than just a voice from heaven, and they're more certain because the Scriptures, he says, were not produced by human ingenuity. They don't have human origins. So I know that I know that people find it hard to understand how the Bible came to be. And so some people want to say that the Bible is a human book. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a a European book. It's a white man's book. No, the Bible says, actually, its origins are divine. Okay. And, and, and what Peter says is, um, he says crucially, and this is, this is how Peter, Peter's one of the, one of the, one of the apostles, or one of the writers in the New Testament that introduces us to the process. How does this book, how do we get this divine book? He tells us that it's, be, it's because the men who wrote it, so he, he says, uh, when we say the Bible is divine, we're not saying, like Islam claims that Muhammad was somewhere and received writing from heaven type thing. We're not saying that. We, we affirm the instrumentality of human beings. Historians wrote the Bible, you know? They had to, folks who wrote the Bible before us, some of them, you read a, a book like, Chrono, like the Chronicles, a book like Luke, they were actual historians. They were interviewing people. They were, they were listening to oral traditions. They were researching. They were reading. They were studying. God used men. Sometimes, of course, it was you know, these visions. Sometimes God spoke directly to men, and they, they wrote what they were told. But it's not, it's not the right way to think of how the Scriptures came to be. If you, just, if you think that the Bible, the way the Bible came to be is every, God just, you know, a guy would wake up, and he had a, immediately he had a vision, and he just wrote what he saw. Or God took his hand and he just that's no, as I said, some of it is research, painstaking study and preparation, and then they write all this stuff. But the point is that whole process is superintended, it's 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 overseen by God's hand in a unique way, in a way that nothing that was jutted down, was jutted down by purely human. Um, thinking. No, nothing that was written was ever just the, the thoughts of a, of a man. It was ultimately always divine guidance. So, so Peter says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Not simply that they were guided, but that they were carried, right? It's an in, intentional, intentional um, language there from the apostle Peter. Um, and so, and, and office, of, often this is referred to as the doctrine of concurrence. So There's a unique way in which the the divine activity and human activity they concur in giving us the scriptures, right? They they come together, hundred percent. God uses the the inclinations, he uses the past and previous experiences, he uses the personality, he uses the situation, he uses all these things in the in the in the human instrument to produce. Um, and, and to produce his word. And it's because God is condescending. He, God has to speak to us in a language that we can understand, and the language we can understand is the language of uh, fellow, fellow humanity. So, um, Peter tells us that um, God so guided the process of giving us his word that the biblical authors, they, 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 they basically spoke and wrote that which God had designed. So not denying the instrumentality, the activity of, 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 of men, not denying that of, 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 um, of, of human instruments, but saying that it was, it, was, it was guided in such a way that the result is a work that is purely divine, which is exactly what God wants to say to human beings. That's the doctrine of inspiration. That's what Christians believe about this Bible in their hands. I think when it comes to almost solidifying, though, this doctrine and fully understanding it. One of the strongest points um, of of defending this doctrine, especially in the hearts of Christians, is to appreciate that what we believe about the Bible. So I've quoted to you two passages from the New Testament, and of course, for the Christian, those, those, those two passages have enough authority to convict us about what the Bible is. But actually, it's important to know in this, um, in this context that the our lord jesus christ shared the same view of inspiration that's to say that one of the things that christians often overlook is that jesus christ himself so jesus our prophet because there's people today who almost pit the inspiration of scripture against jesus so they'll say you know let's not worry let's not argue or fight over the details of scripture you know, let's, let's not condemn people if they find it hard to believe the Scripture. Let's just preach Jesus. Let's just follow Jesus. But if you are really concerned to follow, if you really want to follow Jesus, then one of the things you're going to have to admit is that Jesus believed a narrow doctrine of inspiration. That is, he believed the Bible was God's Word. And I think one of the things that Christians often we don't explore enough is the extent to which Jesus Christ um, the extent to which Jesus Christ defended inspiration, or the extent to which it was clear in his entire ministry that he believed that the Bible, in the doctrine of inspiration, that the scriptures, and, you know, Christ had the same Old Testament scriptures that you and I have. You see the same Old Testament scriptures that they cause, you know, you read about, um, you read about the, 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 the Levit- Levitical laws, and you read the, the genealogies and you read certain scenes and certain acts, and they, they cause you a lot of consternation. You're like, C- can this really be God? Like, that same Old Testament is what Christ read and is what Jesus Christ um, was referring to in, the, in, in some of the things I'm going to say to you now, okay? So um, let's think through Christ's doctrine, how, how Jesus, Christ, Jesus Christ's view of inspiration. So, the first thing is just that he held to the same view of inspiration uh, that his apostles were teaching in those two previous passages. In fact, quite quickly, in fact, their view of inspiration was, was, was the view of their master, right? Um, so, John 10, verse 34, Jesus Christ, when he was debating with the Pharisees, he says to them, the scriptures cannot be broken. That's the view, that's the view that Jesus Christ had of, of the scriptures, of God's word. They cannot be broken. Right, The scriptures cannot be put aside. They always have authority. They, they, you can't argue what the scriptures say. Again, in, in Matthew 22, verse 43, Jesus Christ, he, allu- he, he shows us the same, um, the same doctrine that we read of in, in, in Peter's words in, um, in, in Second, Peter, Second Peter 1 that we read earlier. Jesus Christ says in Matthew 22 and, and verse 43, Similar process. He he shows us that he believes the scriptures came to us via the same process that Peter um, unfolds in in his epistle. 22 verse 43. um, He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, and I'll put your enemies on your feet. So Jesus Christ is quoting the Psalms. He's quoting the Psalms, and he says, David said... In the spirit, right? What David said, now, now now that very phrase there, David said this. So he quotes a psalm and he said, David said this in the spirit. That phrase in the spirit is not present in the Old Testament text that like Jesus Christ is quoting. That that when 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 um, um, Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Nothing in the psalm say the Holy Spirit said this. When Jesus Christ is quoting it, he says, Those are the words of the Holy Spirit. It's the same doctrine that Peter uh, teaches us in his, in his epistle. Um, so, the same process of concurrence. That, that is, Jesus Christ believed that when David was speaking in the Psalms, it wasn't just David, it was the Holy Spirit speaking through David. This is what our, this is what our Savior believed. It's everywhere. So, so never think that the doctrine of inspiration is defended by those two major passages, those two key passages. You go to 2 Timothy 3, you go to 2 Peter. The doctrine of, the, of inspiration is, is similar to the doctrine of the Trinity. It pervades all of Scripture. Everywhere you, you, you find allusions, you find, if you want, the self-awareness that Scriptures have that this is the very Word of God. Again, same chapter, 22, verse 32... Um, Jesus Christ says, in dispute with the with the Pharisees, so he's disputing something with the Pharisees. These words are so interesting. This time it's for the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Jesus Christ says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Right? So, the Sadducees don't believe in the, in the resurrection. They don't believe, they believe that when you die, it's done. Jesus Christ is going to prove the resurrection from the Old Testament. And he proves it by reading this statement. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Why does that defend the resurrection? In Christ? Why, why is that a defense of the resurrection? I'm asking, I'm, yeah, I'm asking you that. Why is that a defense of the resurrection? Look at Matthew 22, verse 32. Why is that a defense of the resurrection? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Why is that a defense of the resurrection? Once you answer the question, it's going to show you the extent to which Jesus Christ believed that God's word was divine. Who wants to to give me an answer why that's a defense of the, Aaron? Right, and th- the point is, the point is, is similar to this. Christ is saying this is all happening, this is in the present tense, right? I am the God of the living. He didn't say I was the God. Because when you read that in the Old Testament, it doesn't even strike you as having that same impact. But Christ is saying, if God is speaking in the present tense, the point I'm making is, for Jesus Christ, the inspiration of God's truth went as far as the very tense tenses in which um, phrases are put in the Old Testament. Similar th- you can see a similar thing actually in Galatians 3, when um, the Apostle Paul is, is, is explaining the Abrahamic covenant, and he says um, that when, when God says he's going to give seed to Abraham, he doesn't say seeds, he says seed. So, so he def- he's, ex- and, and he's, he's basically saying, listen, that, that, that shows you that the seed that God was talking about is, is Jesus Christ. The point I'm making there is in that passage, the Apostle Paul is defending truth by, by like, sing- whether something is in the singular or in the plural. So you see how far the, um, the, the Bible, the apostles, Jesus Christ, how far they were convinced that the Bible was God's word. Every single part of it. And and, and the point I'm making there is, we should be careful before we assume that, you know, the Bible is inspired when it talks about how to walk with God. Now, it's true. The Bible is just about that. The Bible is here to teach you how to walk with God. But to simply say the Bible is true when it talks about, you know, how to get to God, how to worship Jesus, how to, it's inspired in matters of faith. But when it comes to history and geography, there's no, it's not really inspired there. The Bible has error there that is not a view of inspiration that is consistent with, for example, our Lord Jesus, who is willing to read into the tenses, willing to read into whether something's in the plural. That was clear, that's clearly the view of someone who thinks that all of God's, all of God's Word is inspired. Another thing we see in Jesus Christ and his view of his doctrine of inspiration is that when when, when Jesus Christ was so convinced that the scripture, scriptures are God's word and, and are of perfect divine origin, that for him, when the scriptures speak, God speaks. And this is a crucial, this is just a crucial argument in developing how we understand the divine origin of the Bible. So simply the fact that, the fact that when we get to the New Testament, scriptures and God are interchangeable, right? So you're gonna see now verses where in the Old Testament, there's no indication that God actually spoke these words. They were just recorded in Scripture. But in the New Testament, the writer of the New Testament passage, wherever it is, is alluding to the fact that those words that were written are what God spoke, so they personalize it. This is something that God actually says. Now, of course, we take that for granted as Christians. You and I believe, when we open our Bible, we say, oh, God said this to me, God said that to me. What I'm showing you is this is not just a matter of a figment of your imagination. This is the consistent view that the Bible itself has of the authority of God's word. So eight, Ma- Matthew 18 verse 6. You guys read this because you're going to answer this one as well. Um, sorry, not Matthew 18. I put the wrong reference. It's Matthew, uh, Matthew, Ma- Matthew 19 verse 6. Matthew 19 verse 6. Um, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Um, sorry, let me read from verse five. No, I'm going to read from verse four. So you read from verse four to six. He answered, have you not read that, the, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall la- leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore God has joined together let not man separate can you see how Jesus Christ who can see how Jesus Christ makes the scriptures equal with God Who, who can you see the, the subtle change there Where's the subtle change in, in verse four in particular um verse four and five to be fair can can you see it can, can someone can you see how Jesus Christ makes the scriptures equal with the very voice of God. Like when the scriptures speak, God speaks. I know you've seen it. Someone tell me, then. Say that again. Sorry. It's Genesis. Yes. But in Genesis, we never see God does It's not. We're not told that God actually says those words. Most likely. It's Moses. Moses' summary of the situation, right? Um, but 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 Jesus Christ says it's God that said that, right? So what the scriptures, what Moses writes as a summary in a scripture, is something that God Himself says, and this 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 um, this th- this this approach to understanding the scriptures is seen all over and over again. Um, in, in, in the rest of the New Testament so three, 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 three ways in which this is brought out one is just the assumption that um, when something is written in the scriptures it has authority so you have a series of, of verses in the um, in the New Testament where the, the New Testament author says it is written or the scriptures say And just because they say that it has divine authority. For example, Jesus Christ, Satan comes to tempt him, he says, It is written. Now think of it. In one sense, all you said is a book, there's a book that says, right? None of us would ever use that in an in an argument and think it has authority. Like if if we're disputing something and I said, Oh, but there's a book that says, or it is written in a book, you'd be like, so? Like, what book is this? Who wrote the book? But in the New Testament, it's taken for granted over and over again. It is written, the scriptures say, according to the scriptures, right? If it's written in God's word, if it's written in the scriptures, it has divine authority. In fact, God's word is so much the sole authority of the Christian, that just by saying it is written, we already know who it's referring to. And, and, and just by saying it is written, there's authority. There's a divine mandate. So if I say it's written, it proves it, because it's in the scriptures, and the scriptures are God's words, are God's word. The other thing, though, is is, is what, I, what, what I was, I've been telling you about is is, is the way in which um, the scriptures are not afraid to um, to, to 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 use. To, 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 to speak so closely of the Scriptures and God as if they were the same voice, right? So, so in, the, in, the, in, the, in the concept, in the minds of the New Testament writers, when the Scriptures are speaking, God is speaking. When God speaks, the Scriptures speak. Now, let me read some... I'm going to read three passages that will demonstrate this. First, well, first one is in Romans 9 and verse 17. And in Romans 9, verse 17, The Apostle Paul says, and he's referring to the, to, to the Exodus. He says, um, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, the scripture said to Pharaoh, or the scripture say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You, you guys, do those words ring a bell to, to you guys? What's the story? What story are we in from those words? Huh? Right? And what's in particular, what scene is that? What scene do you think those words come from? Give me a summary. Tao, give me a a summary. (laughs) (laughs) They come, they go to Pharaoh, right? It's in one of those scenes where Moses goes to try and tell Pharaoh listen, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh's obstinate, and you know, um, it's recorded. But in particular, this is what God says. It's God who says this about Pharaoh, right? Um, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. God's, in the Exodus story, this, these are words that God says to Moses about Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh this. God actually says those words. Paul says, the Scripture says. When God speaks, Scripture is speaking, Right? So again scripture is the very very the very voice of God so much so Paul doesn't mind mixing those things up. You see a similar thing in Galatians 3 and verse 8. Galatians 3 verse 8 And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. Where are we in this passage? Where what 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 what's 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 the old testament setting for what I've just said to you you just heard read in galatians 3 verse 8 Abraham speak of then covenant. covenant right god's calling to abraham you, you you know that in the in the um for the most part in the genesis narrative surrounding abraham when god makes promises to abraham like oh in you shall all nations of the earth be blessed or you know your seed will be uh, more than the dust of the earth. For the most part, who speaks to Abraham? Right? Directly. God speaks to him. Paul says, the scriptures say that. Right? They, they, the scriptures pr- say that to Abraham. The scripture foreseeing the, the scripture foresaw this and said it. Right? Again, for Paul, it's not a thing to, to say that when God is speaking, the scriptures are speaking. Um, the flip side of this, you can see in Hebrews chapter 3. We'll just do one more of this. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Um, the, the writer of the Hebrews, uh, quoting a psalm, says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where well, your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my way. Anyone know what Psalm this is? Psalm, is, is that in Hebrews 3? 95, absolutely. Psalm 95, the writer of Hebrews writes this about the rest of God. The thing to mark note here is, Again, as I said earlier, Psalm 95 never actually says that God said this or the Holy Spirit said this. It's it's the psalmist who says this. But when the scriptures speak, when the psalmist speaks, it's God who speaks. This, This sort of interaction, this kind of overlap that is present in the mind of the New Testament authors is just as significant to understanding the doctrine of inspiration, to seeing it in your Bibles, as it is to. As, as, as 2 Timothy 3.16 is, or 2 Peter 1.21, which is, they're absolutely vital, but so is seeing that tension, seeing that interaction, seeing the way in which the New Testament writers think. Because what happens then is you realize that the view we have of the Bible is not just a view formed in, in, in you know, like in, in the place of, or, or because of a desperation we have to treat God's Bible as divine. It's the very testimony of the Bible itself the very, so, so we're not the first people, we're not the ones who started saying what you're doing is wrong because the Bible says this, right? What you have is you have people who respond to that and say that's so unloving or that's not even relational, like you don't know how they see that, the, you know, how can you speak with such authority? We're not the first to recognize an intrinsic divine authority in God's words. It's always been the case. God's people have always read the Bible that way, and that is why the Bible is infallible, trustworthy. So the second thing to look at tonight quickly is just this idea of infallibility, right? Um, and, and really, what infallibility is, is like the other side of the coin. It's the necessary consequence of the doctrine of inspiration. That is, if you believe that everything in the Bible is breathed out by God, it's God's divine word, then... If you believe that everything in the Bible is God's divine word, then you, you, you're not going to believe that... It's, it's unlikely that you're going to believe that parts of it are wrong, right? You're not going to really believe that the, you know, the Bible has error in it if you believe that uh, all, of, um, all of the Bible is God's word. If God breathed out his word, if God was, was overseeing um, the way in which his word came to us, then obviously that word is going to be perfect. And so infallibility is, is basically that. In, infallibility is the idea that the scriptures are free from error. There's no error in the Bible. Um, and, and that in all that they teach, uh, they are, they're, they're true, so they can't deceive you. They can't, there's no falsehood. And they're incapable of being wrong. So 20 years down the line, the Bible will not be wrong in what it, what it has taught about marriage right? 50 years down the line. So, today, marriage is a good one, right? Someone might say, but how can you believe a book this, this old? First of all, the idea that our sins are so vastly different to the sins of, like, a Roman Empire and so on is really, really overstating the case. But anyhow, it's not so much about the era or the age, it's the eternal God who's spoken in his word. The Bible will always be true, not just relevant, 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 yes. But relevant is probably, in this context, not even sufficient enough a word. The Bible will always be true. It's infallible. Incapable of being wrong. There's nothing that's going to happen in the world in 10, 20 years. No, no change in technology. No advance. Now, now, I should say this. It is true that we change our understanding of the Bible. That is, sometimes we misunderstood things. We got things wrong. And... I think, to some extent, advancement in, in like, technology can do that, and society can help Christians see things in a clearer light, of course. But that's never because the Bible was wrong in the first place; It's because we misunderstood it, right? But as long as we're faithful in interpretation, in interpreting the scriptures, it's always going to be true. It's infallible. The Bible can't be wrong. It's not wrong in anything it says. How would you illustrate this from scripture? I think, again, you might just go to as I said, you say, think about the doctrine of inspiration. I, I can't, for, for the life of me, I can't see how you could believe a doctrine of inspiration and think any different of the Bible. That, that is, think that the Bible is less than infallible. But what you could also do, I, I would say, is you could go to Jesus Christ's doctrine of inspiration. What was Christ's doctrine of, inspira- of, oh, sorry, of infallibility? And, and three things come to mind. I'll say these quite quickly about how Jesus Christ was related to the scriptures and why we can be sure he had an infallible view. One is one thing is is the well four things now. One thing is the it is written, those it is written passages that we we spoke about. The fact that Jesus Christ frequently said, it is written and he just stood on it. He stood on the authority of what was written. If it was written it was true. If it was written it was worth building your life on. If it was written you couldn't argue against him. Like, it was true if it was written. The Bible was the final arbiter of truth. Another thing is how often in Christ's... And sorry, um, I'm not going to read a a lot of these verses. Those at home can actually see this. I'm sorry, guys. Um, The Bible is... um, The Bible is constantly, Jesus Christ says, that the things that take place in his life happen because the Scriptures have to be fulfilled. So, so there's one thing is Christ always saying it is written. There's another thing Christ always saying that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When you're reading through your devotional and you're reading your New Testament and you come across those verses that say, and this happened so that it might be fulfilled, right? Realize that one of the things that's happening there is Jesus Christ is affirming the infallibility of scriptures. If the scripture said this four, five, six hundred, thousand years ago, a thousand years ago, then it has to be fulfilled. Because whatever the scripture says are going to come to pass. Another thing is the effects that Jesus Christ says the scriptures have on our lives. Two passages come to mind. Um, John five thirty nine 39 to 40, where Jesus Christ speaking to the Pharisees says, you search the scriptures for in them you have, because, well, possibly the interpretation is, the likely interpretation is, is because you think in them you have eternal life. I think what Jesus was doing, he was affirming that that's why people search the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures for eternal life. You could never... How could you say that of a book and then even suggest that you thought the book was erroneous? That was that. that I suggest to you is an indication of how our Savior approached the Scriptures. They were capable of giving you eternal life, life of God, because what they say are infallible. Or in Matthew 22 and 29, where he says... um, he speaks, speaking about the scribes, he says, um, you, you, you you, err, you, you, you fall into falsehood because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Right. You're in error. You're in untruth because you don't know the scriptures. That is, if you knew the scriptures, you would know truth because the scriptures are truth. Once you know the scriptures, you know truth. It's Christ. Christ believed the scriptures were um, infallible. And that same passage he says and so you don't know the power of god but another thing last thing to say is is how often jesus christ would say that the scriptures testify of him you know the passages luke 24 and on, on road to Emmaus with those disciples um, john chapter 5 um, 39 to 40 these the same passage i read earlier where I, in john five thirty-nine, where jesus christ says you um you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life but the, verse 40, he says, they testify of me. Over and over again, Jesus Christ is clear. Um, and I should really turn your attention to, I, let me read Luke 24. This is the last point before I make some closing applications. Luke 24, um, because in, in this passage, Jesus Christ is, is, is very clear about the way in which the scriptures point to him. And, and I think the very fact that the scriptures testify of Jesus and the fact that he says the scriptures tell the whole story about him, his death, his resurrection, should fill us with um, confidence that Jesus believed the scriptures were were, were infallible. So Luke 24, um, verse 25, you'll see just in. I think this is a, there's a rebuke here. Um, Jesus Christ rebukes them. He says, "Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe." all... All that the prophets have spoken. You should have believed everything the prophets spoke because what the prophets speak is true. By the way, the prophets, when he says all that the prophets have spoken, he's not just talking about what we call the prophetic books. The whole of the Bible is, pro- is prophecy. Peter says that, Peter refers to the scriptures as prophecy that came not by the will of man, but as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And you, you know this is true because in verse 26, Christ says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then what did he do? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's a, a way of saying he went to the entire Bible to teach them about himself. So the whole Bible was, to be, they should have believed, they should have, they should have understood, they should have believed it. And uh, if they had searched it properly, they would see that this, this whole Bible, the whole thing was telling one great story, the story of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul preaches, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that when he preached the gospel to the, to the Corinthian church, it was according to the scriptures, because the scriptures are the ones that testify to Christ. And it's crucial to say then, as I bring this to a close there, that that's ultimately what the scriptures do. They tell us about Jesus Christ, right? So I'm not saying that the, I, I believe the Bible is true in everything it says, but it's not a science book, neither was it written in 2021. So essentially, even the things it says about science, although they're true, they might be true in a unique way for the age when it was written. It's a pro to history or geography. It would would, would be true in a way. People say this often about the mustard seed. The mustard seed wasn't the smallest seed ever. At the time, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was cultural language, it was a way it, absolutely people understood what Christ was saying by this it 's a smaller seed he wasn 't making a rigorous scientific claim, he was making a claim that would have been understood by his age, for example um, so i 'm not saying that we, we don 't read really it appreciating the context um, and, and crucially we must we must uh, con- conclude that the bible is to, the, what the Bible is here for is to teach you about Jesus Christ so, so the Bible isn 't even here to help us. To, to, to make a it, it, it teaches you how to approach science with god in your mind it teaches you that even science must glorify god that maths must glorify god but it, of course but the bible is not concerned to develop those subjects as it were the bible is, is, is concerned to to bring it to god and that's crucial for us to appreciate as we as we proclaim and defend the doctrine of inspiration let me close by the, with these applications first of all um The Bible is not trustworthy if it is not inspired, right? So people, I'm saying that today, I'm saying that because today you find people who want to claim that they believe that the Bible is trustworthy. They believe it's reliable. They just don't believe that it's right to say that everything the Bible says is true and that in every way it's it's God's word. Let's not say that, but it is a reliable book for us to use. Let me tell you why there's a problem with that the a problem with that because how can this book be reliable when as we've just seen this evening the book itself is constantly claiming to be perfect in everything it says the book itself is constantly claiming to be the very word of god the book itself is constantly claiming to have divine origins how can the book be reliable if in one of its most fundamental fundamental assertions you claim it to be unreliable so don't deceive yourself that you can speak about the trustworthiness of the bible whilst also rejecting the doctrine of inspiration. The moment we reject the doctrine like inspiration or infallibility, we also have to reject any consistent idea of reliableness or trustworthiness. Let's not kid ourselves. The Bible becomes, honestly, the Bible becomes just like any other book. Can't remember who wrote that book. Someone wrote a book called Not Like Any Other Book. Who wrote that? No? Okay. Not Like Any Other Book. I can't remember, but yeah, there's a book about a Bible called "Not Like Any Other Book." Absolutely, it's not like any other book. Okay. Second thing to say is, as I, as I've just been stressing, though, the Bible is about Jesus Christ. The Bible's pointing us to Him. When when Christ says, "You you read these words because in them you have eternal life," what He's saying is, God actually went through that whole process. So so let's be very clear here, because sometimes Christians make it look like the whole process of inspiration. And God, you know, uh, uh, overseeing and guiding the course of history so that we can have an inspired book of our hands was done so that we can beat people over the head with the scriptures or done so that we can take some moral high ground. No, it was done because God wanted to testify about his son. It's done because God wants to tell us about his son, Jesus Christ. The whole point of inspiration is so the Holy Spirit can bear witness to who Jesus is. And that's what's at stake if we allow the doctrine of inspiration to be undermined, is Jesus himself. You, You cannot, and I've heard it way too often these days, I've seen preachers mount their pulpits who claim to believe that they're preaching to a church, who want to preach the gospel, who want to preach about the blood of Jesus Christ, at the same time, who want to suggest that the scriptures can be wrong on some things, that the Bible is not you know, let's not call the Bible inspired. Let's not say the Bible is perfect. Not only is that inconsistent, it's actually, um, it's actually uh, an assault on the doctrine of Jesus Christ himself. We will, lose, uh, we will lose ultimately then any firm ground upon which to proclaim the gospel if we deny the inspiration of the scriptures. And the last thing is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So when Jesus, when, when I tell you that the Bible, um, when I tell you that the Bible is uh, it, pointing to Jesus, what I'm saying is, and, and, and think of it, Jesus Christ said to, to the Pharisees, You're searching the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. In, by implication, what he was saying to them is, But when you read it, you don't get eternal life from it because you don't realize it's testifying about me. When you read the Bible, it points you to Jesus because only in him can we get eternal life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. That means when we read our Bible and we see Christ in it, he brings us to God. He's the way to God. He tells us the truth about God, and he gives us the life of God. And uh, and, and there's two things that have to be said then. If you're not a Christian this evening, if you haven't you, you, you just can't surrender your life to Jesus. You just can't find yourself walking with him. You, you're not following. Maybe you're a Christian by name only. And as you hear this, you, you're, 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 you're aware of that, that you're, you've never been so concerned about the authority of scriptures. And you find it hard to submit to the, um, the, the will of God. Maybe what you need to do is read the scriptures afresh. Read them and see how they testify to Jesus, the one who, leads, who gives us eternal life. The scriptures will give you life. Meditate on the scriptures will truly give you life. Meditate on the scriptures will truly open your eyes to your sinfulness, how desperately sinful you are, how desperately you are in need of God, but how full and free the grace of Jesus Christ is. Don't just say, oh, this sounds all mumbo-jumbo. Read the scriptures. There's nothing like it to liberate you. It doesn't matter what book you're reading. Maybe you've been reading other books, other holy books, well, you've heard me say tonight that there's only one book that God has truly inspired. Read the scriptures. Put your holy books aside. Read this one tonight. Read this one. Read a passage from there. And, and may God open your eyes to, to see its divine imprint. God speaks. And then for Christians, the Bible leads you to Jesus. Some of, you were, some of us are so far from him. We feel that. We feel the coldness. We're not, we're not obeying his will. We, we don't find his will beautiful. Meditate on God's word. Fill your heart and your mind with God's word. One way to do that is to have your Bible and read it. Absolutely. Another way to do that is to listen to sermons. Fundamentally, though, you have to be meditating on God's word. Let God's word get into you. Too many of us, right, all the Bible verses we know are here, but none are in here. There's something wrong with that approach. That's not how it's meant to be. You read those words so they can get into your heart. You know, for the most part, all the folks that read, all, all the folks in this book that we read of, for the most part, none of them actually had Bibles like this. And yet, look at how many of us can boast about the same devotion, the same love for God's word that David boasts of in a Psalm 119, or that David speaks of, sorry, in a Psalm 19. How many of us can say that God's word is hidden in our hearts? How many of us can say, I meditate on his word day and night? I've seen it in my life where Bible reading, listen, Bible reading becomes an obstacle to meditating on God's word because I'm, I'm reading just a tick. I need to finish this quick, but I, I'm not pausing to meditate on the richness of God's word. Christian, God's word leads you to Jesus. Stop taking it for granted. Give it its highest priority. Let's repent. Let's get word, God, God's word into us. And remember that as we're reading the scriptures, we're hearing the very words of God. Amen.